0: I learned that I'd got, um, I would learned that what I was hoping to do in the priesthood, I could do not in a religious context, but just the compassion, I suppose, that was what was important. I could bring that hopefully to, to people.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 28th episode of Job Speakers. My name is Rob Hendrickson. I'm your host. It is always a privilege and a pleasure to spend some time with you. You just heard our guest this week. His name is Ian Hassel. And I guess that clip will give you a sense for uh, what the episode will cover, but I feel it's, it's really interesting and timely that Ian, Ian was my guest this week. As I'm sitting here, it's Wednesday. Our election here in the U.S. was yesterday. There are a lot of elevated feelings, people who are anxious, upset. Social media, of course, is always the easiest thing to use to just blast everyone around us. I hope that I hope that goes down. I hope that abates, regardless of who ends up winning this election. But as I think about the, this episode with Ian and how much his life has been focused on serving others, I do want to encourage everyone out there. And I, you know, I mentioned starting this podcast partly to get us out of our bubbles, but I do want to mention uh, to everyone out there uh, two small bits of advice, without getting too heavy-handed. The first is seek to understand. So often today we see people and maybe we're guilty of it ourselves, so quick to just levy these broad brushed accusations. Um, Most always not true or partly true, but so easy again to do on social media. So let's all try to seek to understand a little bit more. And the second piece of advice I offer is always allow for the possibility that you are wrong. You know, sometimes we're so caught up in our views and our feelings and we look to confirm them through our biases that we don't actually humbly pause and think about the fact that we could be wrong. Maybe those two items, those two concepts um, might help. Maybe they'll fall on deaf ears with everyone out there, but I feel like our country and the world needs it right now. And I feel like we need to be better than we are. uh, And I hope that can happen. So enough of all that. Let's jump into the episode. Ian is one of the kindest, sweetest guys in the world with some great stories. And I really know you're going to enjoy the episode. So I will disappear for a few minutes here and let you hear directly from our guest. Ian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. It's lovely to be here.
1: I know our listeners are already detecting an accent. Could you tell us where you are Zooming from, please?
0: Absolutely. I'm Zooming from Herefordshire in the UK. Um, But I've probably got a bit of a London accent because that's where I was born.
1: And maybe, and I do have, I think, about 20 listeners out in the UK. You're my second guest. Uh, My good friend Martin was the first. And uh, it's, if nothing else, an excuse to reconnect. So it's always, it's always fun to do that. You Absolutely. How many, how many years um, has your working life uh, been so far?
0: That's a very interesting question because I was only talking to Les about that this very morning. And next year, it will be 50 years ago since I left school. 50 years. <laughs> Can you imagine?
1: Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's just... you, you don't look a day over 35. <laughs>
0: You're flat for you, <laughs> but thank you.
1: <laughs> so let's, let's do this. Um, let's start with where you are today and, and what you're doing today. Could you tell us uh, what your, what your job is these days?
0: Of course, Rob. Yes, yeah, certainly. I work for um, Herefordshire council as a registrar. So my main job is to marry people, which is something that I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, it's a, uh, it, it covers a lot of, uh, the whole, the whole, sorry, the whole area of Herefordshire is, is a, quite a, it's not a huge county, but it's got some fabulous properties that, where we can have weddings, um, and I really enjoy it for, for lots of different reasons, which I'll obviously explain as we go through the, the, um,
1: the talk. Absolutely. So you marry people, is, is that the sum total of what you do, or are there other roles that go along with being a registrar?
0: Yeah, I mean, normally a registrar would do births, deaths, and marriages, but um, I was, there was a group of us taken on uh, part-time to cover the summer pe- busy summer periods. But um, that has sort of extended, and I just uh, am available all year to do it, really. Obviously, it is busier in the summer. Not so much this year, of course, because of COVID, but um, generally it's very busy. But So I just have the the, the best part, really, just doing the weddings. I don't have to worry about the other side of it, so that's, that's great.
1: How long have you been a registrar? This is my
0: third year now, Rob, doing this.
1: And do you happen to know, if you have a great memory maybe, how many how many couples have you married?
0: Oh goodness, I should check that out. I, I do keep a record actually of it, because it's just for interest purposes really, just to see how many it is. But um, last year was a lot more. There was, um, oh crikey, it must have been about 80 or so last year, I suppose. Okay. Um, but, uh, this year's obviously has been less, but I'm not sure about the whole, the total number, but it has been, it's, it's, well over a hundred now.
1: Yeah, so. right. It must be, even if we take the 80 and multiplied it times three ish. Um, that's, that's a, that's a lot. So what, what, what does that mean? I guess lately, I guess COVID changes things a little, but how many couples are you marrying now? Would you say on average per week?
0: Right. It's only uh, like th- th- this next week, I've got three couples, okay. um, but it, it, it does it is varying, and of course they're much smaller uh, weddings now because you can only have a, a very small number of people at the wedding. So a lot of people are having just a small ceremony, and then perhaps having a party next year um, or the year after. Even a couple I married yesterday they've decided to have a big party in two years' time because they think, well, next year is it looking a bit dodgy still? So if we make it two years' time, it'll be hopefully all be over by then, and they can have a nice party.
1: So two curiosity questions as I prepared for today. The first is, what has been the biggest age difference between the, a couple you've married?
0: Oh, right. That's an interesting one. Yes. I mean, we've had people in their late teens right through to people in their 70s. So okay. that's really, not, so
1: yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the range. So 70s would be sort of the high end and late teens, the low end
0: yeah it would it would yeah yes and obviously everything in between but um i mean it's lovely marrying an, an older couple perhaps it might be their second marriage because maybe they've been widowed or uh whatever so it's lovely to do that
1: have you ever married someone in their late teens to someone in their 70s oh no <laughs> no I done that
0: <laughs> maybe that's for the future <laughs> <laughs>
1: When it comes to the process of of doing what you do, is it scripted? You, you know, how much of it is sort of preordained in terms of what your role is, and, or how much of it is, you know, Ian bringing something special and unique based on his personality to the proceeding?
0: Right. So there is a, a basic script we have to follow because there are certain things we have to do for, for legal reasons. Um, but we are given quite a wide, briefly really, to do what we, we like. And the, obviously the couples can choose readings if they want to, um, which is lovely. Um, and then I usually, before I actually announce pronounce them married, I usually have something to say before that, a little, either a, a, a poem or something, or a, a verse of some sort that I say to the couple, this is what I, I wish for you today. This is so it's personally from me, really. So there is a basic script, but it, we can embellish it as much as People want to really.
1: Do people do people find you and request you? Like, is there a catalog of registrars, and you're the coolest guy, (laughs) or does the county, or does the county, does the county basically dole out, you know, the the job to the to the likes of you and your peers in the role?
0: Yeah, that's really how it is. There's a list of us, and and it's um no one not so far as I'm aware has requested me personally. Um, but, I mean, interestingly enough, Rob, that there's just two of us male registrars, the rest are female. So, we're, we're in the minority. But, uh, yeah, so that, that they can, they, they could, I suppose they could request if they wanted to. I mean, my, my, what I'd really love to be able to do is to marry a friend or a family member. That would be really, really cool, but uh, not yet.
1: As you were speaking about this, you know, marriage is such a happy time. Does that does that translate into your happiness in the role being part of that sort of magical moment, that magical day?
0: It definitely does, Rob. Yeah. That, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy it so much, really. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting really, because, um, it's probably something I've, I, I'm, even when I worked in London, I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely to be a registrar? I thought if ever I ever had my, my work life over again, maybe that's what I would train to do. But of course, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's, um, it, it's it's a very happy occasion and, I, and it, it feels me with happiness too to see a couple, you know, on the, one of the happiest days of their life really. It can't help but but uh, take you over really and it's very moving at times as well because, you know, it's a, it's a very tense time as people are prepared for their wedding and then when it actually happens, some people can't quite believe it's actually here, you know, so they get quite emotional. And uh, I've I've uh, had a few tears bubbling up a few times as well,
1: so... <laughs> So I know when we talked uh, I guess it was last week you know it it occurred to me that you might have experienced some interesting stories maybe you know maybe a bride runs off or maybe the groom faints or maybe someone objects Are, is it is it pretty standard or have you had any of those interesting events occur as part of what you do
0: That is interesting because obviously we have to one of the questions we ask, you know, if anyone is, uh, knows of any reason why this couple should not be married, then please say so now. So because everyone holds their breath, waiting for someone to say something. But it never has happened, actually, to, to me, thank God. Um, and even my colleagues have asked them, too, and it hasn't happened. So it's so I think quite a rare thing, which is really good. Um, I think that that thing that does happen, that perhaps people aren't, um, they, think they think it might happen, but not quite prepared for it, is they get upset, they cry. And sometimes we have to we have to stop then because they're just emotional. But with the whole event, you know, I mean, there was one um, wedding I did fairly recently, and uh, the couple had a young son there, and he was just so happy that he was just crying through the whole ceremony. So, and the, the uh, bridesmaids and everything had to keep um, supporting him and making sure he was okay. Less he just couldn't stop crying. It wasn't because he, was, he was unhappy; he was just so happy for his mother for getting married. So
1: oh, that's 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 brilliant. That's brilliant. Does do do the do the families and, and the brides and grooms do they invite you to celebrate with them as part of their day or do you show up do what you need to do and typically you know say say warm goodbyes and leave?
0: Usually the the latter there, Rob. Yeah, because often we have especially on a busy Saturday we've often got other weddings to go to. Um, sometimes people have stopped and said, "Oh, have a glass of champagne with us," and we think, "Oh, that'd be lovely." I never never say no to a glass of champagne. So. <laughs> So sometimes we do if if there's time, but um not often it's not the usual thing but uh, but the people are very kind and very generous, so it's great.
1: Do you ever reflect on how many wedding albums you're a part of?
0: Well, yes, I mean what's interesting at the moment, of course, is that um we still write the register the marriage register in um register register's inc, which is special because it doesn't obviously fade, and they get a certificate as well. Um but soon that's going to change and it's all going to be computerized and so will they'll do away with the the register, which is a shame. Um but so I often think about how my many times I've written in the register which will be kept forevermore. So that, that's exciting. Um but yeah, I do that has occurred to me about uh, people's wedding albums, and well, some people actually video the wedding as well. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I will be in the video. So, I shall be immortalized forevermore, whether people want to or not.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're there. You, they can't do it without you. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell tell our listeners how how you just. I mean, you talked about an interest in this, but now let's talk a little bit about the path that got you there. So, what was it that in this case, led you to start doing it. And then I can kind of work with you to backtrack and maybe cover, you know, maybe maybe we'll talk about your first job 50 years ago, but just kind of cover your, your journey and some of those pivot points that were instrumental in shaping where you went next and where you ended up.
0: Yes, right. Um, well, it's very interesting because back in the 1970s, I went to train to be a priest and um, I didn't continue with that. Um, but I remember at the time thinking, one of the, if I was a priest, one of the things I would really enjoy doing is to marry people. Um, but I'd say I didn't become a priest. So that was always in the back of my mind, really. Um, but when I didn't become a priest, I then went and worked in the caring profession. And that's been most of my jobs, which I can talk about a bit later. Um, so my, my last job was working in a hospice, um, which was very rewarding. But of course, I was with people at the end of their lives, really, and supporting families as well. Uh, so now having moved into being a registrar, I'm sharing with, with people on one of the happiest days of their life, and that just feels a really lovely thing to be doing after. It's a nice transition, really, for me to be doing that, I think. Um, and the, the way we actually came up, I found out about the job, um, was my husband and I, we went to, we had our civil partnership. We wanted to convert our civil partnership into a marriage. So to do that, we had to go to the town hall where we live, And uh, I met the senior registrar there, and Les happened to say, "Well, if every one could do this job, he'd love to do it," you know. And she said, "Well, we're taking on extra people for the summer, so why didn't you apply?" So I did, and the rest, as they say, is history. So, so so so, I just happened to be—I was in the right place at the right time, you see. (laughs)
1: Right. No, that's that's, and then you say to yourself, "That's how it should have been, right? It was meant to be that kind of thing." So, so that's that's um, that's great, and I can imagine. The rewarding but but challenging aspects of doing hospice care, of course, and then migrating over to this, which is you know, couple starting starting their lives. So so thank you for that. So let's let's back up a little bit more. Um, you talked about considering the priesthood and and made a decision not, not to do that. What t- tell us a little bit about why, and then what happened after that? Maybe we can start the beginning part now of the of the career path uh, you experienced.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, I think, because so when I first left school nearly 50 years ago, would you believe it? Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do then. So I had various jobs in retail and all sorts of things. And then I went to train for the priesthood. But it was, um, it was, it was more because I was struggling with the studies really, I'm not, I'm not an academic. So I found that difficult. And um, the, the rector of the seminary was a lovely man. Um, he said to me after the first year I was there, I'd been to a couple of other colleges previously to that, but he said to me, you'd make a great priest in every other way, but I know you're going to struggle with the studies. So we feel it's probably best if you don't continue. So of course I was devastated because that's, that was what I really wanted to do. And I felt it was a vocation and and all this. So I really struggled after that for a while, not knowing what I was going to do when I left there. Um, But that's when I went into the, Caring profession. I worked um, at a residential home in southeast London um, as a care assistant and I worked my way up really. I was there for three years as a care assistant, then went to another home as an assistant officer in charge. And then after that, I went and managed a a residential home in uh, Fulham in London um, for a while as well. And while I was working there, HIV and AIDS hit the scene, hit the world in a big, major way. And I felt being a gay man, I wanted to do something for my own community. So, left working with the elderly and worked um, for a voluntary organisation in HIV and AIDS. Um, we had a, a drop-in centre in West London for people to come in and be supported uh, as they were living with HIV. And it was a very difficult time because there were people dying in their droves. It was really hard. People, the contemporaries of myself, and it was really, really difficult. Um, so, I, but it was. It, then I so I stayed with that little job for a while. But this, when I was offered that post, I was offered another post at the same time for Westminster Social Services in their HIV department. So when I left the uh, the voluntary organisation, I then went into uh, Westminster Social Services, working in their HIV team for a while again, supporting people in the community. Um, but one of the things that really struck me about it was the courage of people, how courageous they were, um, how brave they were really, because it was a time when we didn't know how things were going to go. People were on different medications, didn't know how, what the, the, what was going to happen to them as a result of taking this medication. So it was a very difficult time, but they were so courageous. Um, and then I led, that led on to me working still with social services in Westminster, working for, um, the home care team, uh, where I managed a team of 40 uh, home carers and I had two assistant managers as well. So that was, that was fun. Um, and then I, but then I still had this inkling to get back into HIV again. So I joined another organization to work in HIV. Again, it was a voluntary organization, again, supporting people in their home. So my role was really training volunteers to support people, um, in their homes and everything with that. Um and then we moved from London down to Sussex and that's when I worked in the hospice and I was there for 14 years. And I had two roles there. My first role was in the day hospice and I was the activity coordinator, so I had to plan all these activities for day patients to do. And then I went to work on the inpatient unit, which was very rewarding. Um and I've got and we actually, interestingly enough, one of the stories I'd like to share with you there is that One couple wanted, we're going to get married, they wanted to get married at the the hospice because the chap only had a few days to really left to live. So it was organized, the registrar was brought in. I wasn't a registrar then, but um, the registrar was brought in. We helped organize it all. And it was just a lovely um, occasion, really. Uh, The family were there and friends. It was very special. And a couple of days after, they had a big party and he was able to attend that. And soon after that, he died and it was. Very sad, obviously, but being there to be able to support the family and his wife through that was very special. Very special indeed.
1: I want to backtrack a little to your to your your work um, with HIV and AIDS and, and people going through horrible horrible time. And you talked about their courage. My, my question for you is: What did you learn about yourself being part um, part of that? You know, what did you learn about yourself during that time?
0: I think I found the whole thing very humbling, really, that, um, that people would allow you into their lives at a very difficult time. That was uh, something that struck me. Um, and I suppose I learned, I felt that I was a good listener, could listen to and support people, really. Um, some who'd been you know, deject, rejected by their families and and friends and things because of what was going on for them. So we were quite a pivotal point in their lives, really, to you know helping them to support and live with um, HIV and AIDS, really, and ultimately to die with it, really. But we were there all through that. So I suppose I learned that I'd got, um, I'd learned that what I was hoping to do in the priesthood, I could do, not in a religious context, but just the compassion, I suppose. That was what was important I could bring that hopefully to to people in that situation.
1: Have you always been so empathetic and such a good listener or was that something you you kind of you know moved into becoming good at that's an interesting question Robert. I think
0: i I, I don't know that I ever knew whether there was a particular time when it when I did i mean I've always been interested in people I suppose um, and I suppose I knew that Um, If I was going to train to be a priest, that would be something, that would be a skill I would need to to, to develop, really. Um, And one of the other things I did when I moved to London in a voluntary organisation, I became a telephone Samaritan. I don't know if they have something similar in America, but it's, um, again, it's people can just phone in, particularly if they're suicidal or life has just really got too much for them, and they just want to talk to somebody that's not emotionally involved with them, just someone that will listen really. So I did that for a while. And that was, um, really interesting too. Uh, so, and at the moment I also volunteer with an organization called Cruz, which supports people who are bereaved.
1: You, you mentioned being gutted when you, um, you couldn't complete your, your work to become a, become a priest. Um, n- Considering that, but also the entire journey you've been on, do you have any regrets about your career path and where you ended up today?
0: I don't really, Rob. No, I think, I mean, it's interesting because when I look back now, it, it probably wouldn't have been right that I was a priest. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to um, have my wonderful husband that I've got and all this sort of thing and have a, a wonderful, a lovely life. And I could still do a lot of the things that I perhaps would have been able to do as a priest. So, um, so, no, I don't have any regrets i've I've really enjoyed the path really um it's when I look back over the fifty years i think i've i've i feel I've achieved a lot for myself I've learned a lot about myself too really um learned a lot about death really as well and that's and it's not to, so taboo now it's I can quite happily talk about it and my own death as well because I think well it's if if I can feel comfortable about it, hopefully other people will be as well and feel easy at talking about it so so no, it's been a it's been a very enjoyable um, career path. I mean, some of the jobs I've enjoyed more than others, but it's been a it's been great. And I, and I think it's the people that I've met too. Um, some really dedicated people I've met who to work with and who I've cared for. So it's been it's been great. Yeah.
1: You you mentioned that your your responsibility increased. You you went from being a carer to managing carers, and, and sometimes you would move off that job and do something more on your own. But when you think about the difference between just doing the job that you had to do versus leading a large team, was that a transition that was easy for you?
0: not um, Not that easy, really, I think. You know, I think, you know, some people are sort of, uh, we're all sort of, some people are leaders, some people are, are, are doers, that sort of thing. And I suppose, I'm glad I had the experience to, to manage, but I never felt I was that good at it. Although my boss at the time, Ruth, um, in the social services department, she was great. And she said, no, you are good, but I didn't think I was. Um, I felt I was better at being a sort of, one of the team really, you know, this, this, the higher you go in a, an organization, the more lonelier it can become. And I think I'm much more of, of a team player. As I say, I'm very glad I had that experience of managing, but um, I think I'm a team
1: player really. You said you didn't think you were good. Why? Why did you feel that way?
0: I don't know. I think maybe, um, you know, I suppose I'd see other managers and think, well, oh, they seem to be much, they seem to handle this situation much better than I possibly could. But Perhaps I handle it in a different way. That's probably what it is. We're all different, aren't we? But uh, no. So it was. I, so I should just accept that um, what Ruth has said to me. Well, you are good, you know. So, but uh, that doesn't always come easy. <laughs> now,
1: now you marry people. So we talked about the joy that you absorb <laughs> as being part of their special day. But you have spent a lot of time helping people throughout through their difficult times. In some cases, you know, their worst times there are a lot of careers, you know, that can place people in those sorts of situations. How did you protect yourself during that period?
0: that's a very good point, really, because, you know, people often say, who cares for the carer? And I think, um, we were, we had a lot of good support in the different organizations I worked in. That was the thing. I mean, we can support each other, um, and then there was there was always counselling there if you felt things were getting too much, um, that you could go, so you could tap into that if you wanted to. Um, but I think it was it's also important to say, right, this is work, but it's important I have a life outside work and don't get just smothered by work and that's all it becomes. I think it was important to, to have a life outside and do other things, have other hobbies and things to do that were completely unrelated to, to the work. That, that was how I got support, really. And, you know, I do find it quite easy to talk to people about stuff. So if I'm struggling with something, I will quite happily say so.
1: You have done so much. And right now your schedule seems maybe not light, but manageable. You're you're not nine to five every day doing what you do, which is wonderful and good for you. Mm -hmm. Is there anything professionally you're still working on for yourself?
0: Uh, No, because I think... You know, I'm coming towards the end of, of my working life, really, although I don't intend to give up yet, by any means, because I enjoy what I do so much, So, that um, I'm going to keep doing it until I, either they kick me out or I think I've had enough. So, um, no, not particularly. I think, um, I mean, I suppose with, with the uh, bereavement volunteer work I do, um, the reason I took that on, really, was because the skills that I'd learned at the hospice, I didn't want to let them go, really. I wanted to put them to, to some good use. And there are courses within that that I can do, and I'm hopefully hopefully going to be doing one on supporting uh, people who've lost children um, through either through stillbirth or through illness and that sort of thing. So, and um, that's going to be an interesting course. So, those sort of things I'm really interested in doing. Um, but as a career path, I think I've sort of I feel as I'm coming towards the the end of that that uh, cycle, really, and then that feels great, you know, because. We want to do other things together, um, Les and I. So that's fine. So that's why I enjoy the part-time work, really, because it gives us time to do freedom, to do other stuff, which is great.
1: If you could talk to your 19- or 20-year-old self and give him a piece of advice now that you've lived the rest of the time, what would that be? Mm, That's a good one, really. Um,
0: I think I would say uh, just go out there and... Live your dream, really. That's the thing, if you can. And um, as I say, when I left school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But um, I'm glad I've tried all those different things. Um, and just to be open to, to opportunity and to be open to change, I think that's really important. Um, and also, I'd say to myself, you know, even if you think you can't do this, have a, have a try, because you just don't know. And you don't know what, what something's going to lead to. I um, mean, there have been lots of things that have, that have happened. I think, oh, you know, if I hadn't been at that particular place at that particular time, this wouldn't have happened. And I'm just glad that those opportunities have, have come up. And you don't always know what's going to come up. Um, and I think one of the other things I've learned too is that something I never, or uh, never ceases to surprise me, is how um, courageous people are and how people, you know, if someone says to you, this is what's going to happen in your life, and you think, cracky. I, I couldn't cope with that, but it's amazing how resilient we all are, and how um, how much we can cope with. We might think we can't, but we can. So that's been a, a great, big learning curve for me. I think
1: when we speak, not during a podcast, it's more social. But I can tell you, it's it's affirming to hear all you you've done, and and I know that I've you know I've read and I've and myself have done this, not to the level you have. But sometimes when we get sort of consumed with ourselves or even maybe down or grumpy, what I've seen so many times in experience is the best way to get out of that is to stop thinking about ourselves and to help to help other people, right? To focus on them. Is that, a, is that your experience too?
0: I think so, Rob. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, it feels, I mean, it feels good to be doing something for other people. Yeah, definitely. Um, because the thing is, what I'm made, you know, when people say, well, oh, thanks for all you've done, it's, it's a two way thing because I'm getting an awful lot from them as well. And I've got so much from, I learned so much from people, really. I mean, when I was training for the priesthood, one of the big things I learned during that period was living in community. Now, that teaches you a lot about people when you live in community, <laughs> you know, all the, the different personalities and all that sort of thing. So I learned an awful lot from that. So that's been. Such a learning curve for me as well,
1: really. When you say live in community, do you mean you and your fellow students were all? Can, can you explain what that means? I guess is the question.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, when I was at the seminary, so you live in a college, really, mm-hmm. and so you live in and everything's done there. So, um, you know, that the, there were nuns to cook the food and all that sort of stuff, but we had um, a rota for cleaning and all this sort of stuff, keep, keeping the place clean and different jobs around the, the, the college we had to do. Um, so, uh, and obviously there's a lot of give and take has to go on. You get lots of personality clashes and all this sort of stuff. So it was, it was, was that was a real good thing because it, it's different if you're, you know, you have that at work, obviously, but then you go, go, you leave work and you go home was that was our, our home. That was our life. So it was a completely different thing. And a lot of people don't experience that. And I'm really glad I did because I, that, that really set me up, I think, for, for, um, coping with people really and their, and their, uh, Idiosyncrasies should we say
1: <laughs> do you stay in touch with anyone who is in in seminary with you?
0: I do, yeah, I do some of them are priests now, and some left like I did, and some are married and all this and it's great, really, so uh yeah, I feel very pleased about that because it's good to have friends that go back a long way and just to see how their career path has gone too, so it's great
1: so let me ask you the the final question if if you uh, reflect on your life and your career, and you could provide career advice for the whole world to hear, what would that be?
0: I think believe in yourself. Really, that's the the most important thing. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, about going, um, just going for something. If you've really, if you've got an interest in something, try and pursue that. Really, um, whatever that might be. And, and, you know, we, we all get knockbacks. Um, we go for interviews. We don't get the job. We might have really set our heart on getting it. And you think, oh, that's the end of the world. But as I've got older, I've realized, well, it was for a reason that didn't happen. Um, so it's, and it's all good experience. So whatever you go through in life may not feel so at the time. But You can look back on that and think, actually, that, that experience I had has, has stood me in good stead to be able to do the next thing I'm doing. So that's, that's the advice I would give, is just to really um, believe in yourself and, and try and get some good support along the way as well. That's, and, and, you know, don't be afraid to ask for support too. And to um, encourage, be encouraged and encourage others as well to do that. That's what I'd say.
1: Now, normally I would say thank you, but before I do, I need to point out And give you a chance to tell us about your monologues on YouTube. Oh, because they are brilliant, and it's it's, you're the first guest I've had who probably can even do them, let alone you know having done them. But tell us, tell us what they are, and and uh, where people can find them.
0: Right, Um, well they're on YouTube, and. The first uh, monologues we did were Alan Bennett's monologues. Um, he's a very a famous writer and playwright author. And uh, they've been televised on, on on the BBC back in the 70s and 80s, they were first done. And then they were recently done, uh, again, during COVID, because it's something, because they're monologues, they, they, they've got to have a whole crew around you to actually film them. So we, we as, I've always enjoyed a bit of acting and stuff like that, something as done as a hobby. and uh, wanted to pursue this really. So we thought, well this would be a good way to do during the lockdown. Um, so Les did it all on his mobile phone as well. Um, and I just did these monologues. So I, I put it all onto the uh, iPad, typed it all onto the iPad. so it's like a, a, tele, a, a pro, teleprompter so I can see that, and I can just just act it out really. Um so thoroughly enjoy doing it so, so it's, it's all on youtube under under our name, um Ian. So have a look at that if you want to be very welcome. And we are going to do some more, um maybe some a bit of comedy because they were quite dramatic things, so we'll do a bit of comedy now as well. so that's something to look forward to hopefully <laughs> well, i will
1: I will also when you know all my listeners out there, I'll make sure that uh, I provide a link to um your monologues. Uh, certainly, on uh, my Facebook page when when I announced your episode. But I started, I started watching the one. It might have been Hand of God. Was that the one where you work at the antique shop and you talk about what you have and what people bring you? And if that wasn't meant to be funny, I have to tell you some of it quite was quite funny because <laughs> of the, because of the way you so strongly felt about what was garbage and what was worthy of making it <laughs> into your shop. So I. I loved it. And it was very relaxing, which these days I seem to need more of um, as we over here in the States, you know, go through a crazy time leading up to the election. But I will point out where to find the monologues. They're fantastic. And uh, your acting is something I never got to experience, even at the pub, but I'm glad to see it today. It's fantastic.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. It's great. I appreciate that.
1: And thank you for being a guest, Ian. You know, you, you have done so much for so many people. It's really inspiring. And uh, it's just great to see your face and, and lots of love.
0: Well, thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, this chat. Thank you so much, Rob.
1: Thank you, Ian. Uh, you inspire me. I hope you inspire uh, others who may listen. I know I said it when we were talking, but there's nothing better than giving of yourself. And, uh, and you sure have done that. And now you get a little bit back. By sharing some really joyful moments with with brand new couples in love, that's just great. For those of you who would like to uh, see Ian in action and watch his monologues, they're excellent. Uh, let me tell you how to find those. I know I talked about putting them up, up on Facebook, but let's just do it now. If you go to YouTube. In search for Les and Ian, one word, L E S A N D I A N, you'll find uh, the monologues we talked about, and they're great. Again, highly recommended. Uh, not just because Ian's a dear friend, but because they're just so entertaining and fun to watch. Normally, at this point, what I do is I spend time telling you about our next guest, being an absolutely horrible liar from about the age of eight. I can tell you, I don't know who that will be. I, uh, you know, doing this, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, Bruce, who was one of our early guests, he was the the horseshoer. He asked me as we talked about our podcast, hey, Rob, how do you intend to find enough people to do one of these every week for the entire year? And I said, I don't know, uh, but I'll figure it out. Well, I crossed the halfway mark, but I have some more figuring out to do. So I'm going to ask you guys this. If any of you knows anyone who does a job I haven't already covered, and is someone who has a good story to tell, please drop me a line. You can get to me through Facebook. You can get to me through robsjobspeakers at gmail.com. But I need to cast my net more widely and I need to find those gems out there, those people who have something to say. And then I can, of course, package that and get it back out to all of you and and a big, broad audience. So help me out. Uh, Send those, those recommendations my way. You know, tell your you know prospective guest friends or acquaintances that I'm harmless and I'm nice and I'll make it a fun experience for them. Um, but I could use a hand if you do know about anyone. Otherwise, I'll just keep farming and hunting and finding people. And if I run out of that, uh, I might even do an, an episode where someone interviews me. But I can only take one crack uh, at that one. And last but not least, I hope everyone out there that you have a great today, tomorrow, And a great week between now and uh, maybe when you dial in next time for our next episode. So be good, be safe, be well. And until next time, goodbye.